from Acts chapter 27, beginning with verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of the small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sardis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was lost, was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet... Now I will urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Verse 41. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Acts chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had agreed, he said to them, Brothers, 
Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what they said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among them, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, Let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all the boldness and without hindrance. Well, we come to the last sermon in this series I would describe as a chronological survey of the book of Acts. I want to, again, recommend that you attend the uh, Sunday morning learning community on this book that's beginning June 17th, I think at 8.45, is that right, a.m., our Sunday school hour uh, downstairs. That class is being led by Michael Hughes, who's sitting over there, who's taught in seminaries before. He'll go through, or Bible colleges or something smart like that, But he'll go through with more detail some of the stuff we have covered and cover some of the stuff I didn't. You'll see there's a lot of verses I won't be able to go into uh, any more deeply. And um, he has a table over there already set up. Looks like a seminary course on the book of Acts. I mean, he got every kind of book over there. Um, I need to sit in there and learn. I have to re-preach this sermon series. Um, But, um, yeah, so please go to that class. I'm going to stop in, too, as well. And... um, just you can sign up now for it. Um, with that said, how does this book, which is like the history of the beginning of Christianity and the foundation of present day Christianity end? As you can see, it ends and begins with the Apostle Paul in Rome under house arrest. If he were alive today, he would have one of those ankle monitors on. It ends with Paul and the faith being controversial, confusing, and still considered among religious people sectarian and cultic. There's no way I could think of to verbally caricature the end of the beginning of Christianity than refer to it as the world's most amazing tragedy. A tragedy put on on the world stage with a growing cast, yes, but with it a growing group of critics. But as with any amazing tragedy, the show goes on. 
the gospel and Jesus' church continues to travel, to broadcast, to, to show up, to spread, to change our lives. But with a very familiar script, the same one we see here in the closing chapters of this book. It is the blueprint of God's world redemption. And it looks like this. It's run by God's providence. It grows at great expense to God's people. And it comes with very glorious results. So last week we saw the Apostle Paul arrested in Jerusalem under the pressure of the Jews who despise this new unorthodox sect of Judaism they called Christianity. And to avoid his assassination by the Jews, Paul gets Roman citizen protection. And after appealing to the highest court in the land, he has to go to Rome to get a court hearing. He boards a ship on the way to Rome from Judea, which meant crossing through the Mediterranean Sea, which was known this time of year to have storms. And a storm called the Northeaster, which was notorious for pushing ships up up, up into the rocks of the islands around the seas, met the ship Paul was on that day. And this is what we read happened. Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, of, uh, angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. I want you to recognize something if you haven't already. What Paul was explaining to these men in the middle of this deadly storm was that the storm was not in control. The plans the storm might have had for them was not in control, but that God, the God he worshipped, was in control control. That God's plan to bring Paul to Rome and to spread the gospel was driving this thing. Not the wind, not the waves, not the storm, not the boat, but the Lord himself. And when the storm hits, everybody has a plan to deal with it and and handle it. The Bible tells us, and we don't have this in our reading, that some soldiers tried to get on one of the emergency boats and get away. And Paul tells the leader to cut the boats away. And then this happens in verse 39, which you don't have. I don't, did we read verse 39? No? Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. They hoisted the foresail to the wind. They made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The the, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely 
to land. Here's the point. Everybody has a plan. Everybody has a way to get over and get through what they're experiencing, to deal with the turmoil and issues in in this world. Everybody has a theory or strength or skill or survival set or instinct, but those plans and powers will not and do not stop the plans and powers of God to strengthen, keep, and move the gospel in the church where God wills and how he wants. As a matter of fact, did you know that Apostle Paul had a plan too? In Romans, we find out that he had planned and just about promised the church in Rome and its leaders that he was going to stop by there on his way to Spain. That he was going to stop in Rome, you know, a casual trip to encourage them and raise some support money like Randy did this morning and then go and help him get to Spain. Paul had a plan to spread the gospel and strengthen the church, probably from Spain all the way up to the rest of Europe. He had a plan, but God had a plan too, a different plan. And God's providence, that is the power and plan of God being shaped silently by him for his will through all the means he has, whether it is a storm or the cultural temperature or the political climate or even the personal desires of people. It is God shaping what he wants according to his plan. Providence is, is when the, the Lord takes plans and circumstances and, and he bends them like he does the storm against this boat and the boat against the storm. And, and then he even takes our own sinful ways and, and ideas and reasons and strong wills and he uses stuff like a storm or a hardship or the ways we are resolved to fix it. And the Lord will bring crisis and he lets our plans and our ways and the world's ways and he bends it against itself. He makes a storm of our lives and and causes our lives to meet his will and break ours. God is in the Northeaster. The Lord is mixing cool and hot. He is on the ones and twos, if you will, mixing a master plan that's got you and me twisted unconsciously and subconsciously grooving and moving to his beat in the breakdown of his providence. He is blowing against the wind of our plans with his will, causing a whirlwind and a tornado of providence. And when he causes his holy tempest in our lives, it upsets and upends the balance of our control. Let me tell you, the Lord is the mastermind behind the shipwrecks in our lives and world. He takes the way we struggle with and against him. And the church struggles with and against itself and this world. And he causes a crash that lands us in the unsettling safety of his will. And so what we may call disaster and tragedy, God calls his perfect and permissive will. And what we give cause and pause to, God has orchestrated in such a way that he is the author of all good and glorious things and yet not the author of sin. Simply put, God is in control. That's why the gospel spreads and deepens within his people. And y'all have been through some storms. As your pastor in this church, I only know a little bit 
of some of the stuff you have been through. Y'all have been moved and shipwrecked and landed and placed in strange and challenging and personally devastating and tragic places when it comes to where and who and how you thought you would be. Many of you, like our church right now and, and Pastor Giorgio personally, are in transition and did not expect to land where you are or be going where you are going. And with it is a whirlwind of mess and change and hardship and sadness. Yet this tempest, this storm, this struggle, this challenge, this shakeup is the hand of God in your lives to bring grace to you in this world through Jesus Christ to face God and see the face of God in the storm. And God will do so at great expense to you and me. This is important, especially for us American dreamers to hear carefully. Because God's dream for you might be found in the American dream deferred nightmare. You know why? Because we believe that if it feels hard or we lose something in the process, our power or our money or our control, that our faith or the faith has failed us. This week in the learning community, the hip-hop cipher learning community, we talked about this new ghetto nihilism coined by Carl Lewis, where, you know, at some point the civil rights movement has failed. You know, forget the values. It it didn't get me money. It just meant more sacrifice. Many turned against a church-driven and fueled civil rights movement as a church failing, as grandmama's prayers and service leading to nothing very grand, as, and they looked at it as the faith failing us. And Christianity's end as ushering the post-church, post-gospel, post-Jesus movement. Because things didn't feel like the American dream. Yet in this story, the beginning of Christianity, hear me, clo- hear me carefully now, because I, I know we have a lot of churches that teach a lot of different things. The beginning of Christianity at what many consider in the book of Acts as its most powerful period, if you look at things, was started not by great personal and financial and political and social gain by its people. I can't look at this book and see anybody getting rich or anybody promising somebody was going to get rich. I see pastors getting in boats and and getting in storms. The Apostle Paul, he ain't getting in this cool car, cruising off to his nice big house. He's getting in a boat that's going to break apart. Praise God, right? (laughs) If y'all want to keep your pastor, you got to give him a car that's going to last. The people of God gain little here personally. The Bible talks about them giving up stuff, even to the point it hurts. Throwing it in a big pile for everybody. Getting arrested, getting killed, getting stoned. That's what this thing's about. We forgot. We skipped this part. All kind of foolish theology. Well, you know, Jesus, he was really rich. He didn't have a job. No, he was just going to die for the world's sins. That's all. 
by great expense and loss. That's how the gospel spreads. In fact, Christianity spreads and is redeeming to the world as God takes the value of our stuff away. And when I say stuff, I mean the value of things you believe give you worth and hope. Do you know how and when the gospel grows in us? Exactly what goes on in verse 20. Okay, let's look at it again. This is the spread of the gospel. This is what the human heart should look like and feel like for the gospel to begin. Ready? When neither sun or stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That's when Paul rose up and everybody started to listen. The Bible says, they then threw, before that, they threw everything overboard. The tackle. They might have had some nice wines in there. Who knows? Some gold, man. That's too heavy. That's going to weigh something down. They threw everything over. Because they were like, we ain't going to make it, y'all. This storm's bigger than us. There's something bigger than us and our personal desires and even pleasing the people on the other end who need their, you know, Amazon order. We got to throw this stuff over. They cut the rescue boats away to save the life of Paul. And then the ship itself was lost. You know, back then, if a soldier lost prisoners, his life was done. The only thing he could do was kill everybody to save his life. And the head guy said, no, nobody getting killed. Paul going to go home, going to go to Rome. They sacrificed the stuff that would weigh them from being saved into the teeth of the storm. The storm took it. The storm ate it. The storm consumed it. And it helped save them and bring Paul to Rome and gave us a lot of letters that he wrote because he was saved that day. And, and, you know, and the interesting thing is here. They sacrificed their tackle. And the Bible says in verse 20, with no stars and sun. Okay, they didn't have GPS back then. The only GPS they had in this darkness was the stars in the sun to kind of figure out where they were going, which directions. The Bible says there was no star or sun. They literally had no competency left. God took that away. They were hopeless. They they literally gave everything they valued in their very lives to the power and mercy of the storm. The captain couldn't even, he didn't even know what to do. He was sitting down. But it wasn't the storm they were giving up their stuff to and the value of their stuff to. Paul made it clear. He said, the Lord told me, y'all are going to be okay. They were being coerced, driven, dragged to give the value of everything they had and who they were to the mercy of not the storm, but the God of the storm. They threw everything they had into his hands, into sacrifice to him. And the Lord took the value of their stuff away, the value of their power, their competencies, their control, their escape routes, their comforts, their getaways. But not only the value of our stuff, but the Lord took away their very personal lives. Kind of talked about this last week, going to reemphasize it. At no point on this journey 
is the Apostle Paul free? Literally. He is a prisoner on a ship in the middle of a storm, and then he is hostage to the will of God as he is thrown around in the storm. And then when he gets to Rome, he is put under house arrest, and the Bible says this in verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. At his own expense, arrested, kept there for God at his own expense. Really, God? Taking the value and even presence of our stuff, our reputations are not enough, but even our personal lives are expendable to the spread of the gospel? Yes. Christianity spreads by God's consumption of anything more valuable and held to than his glory and his will. I mean, God will and has so thrown and tossed your lives that, you know, jobs and all kind of stuff that we will no longer value stupid stuff and temporary things and, and lofty things. He will so lock our hearts and lives into his will that you and I believers will actually pay. We'll actually give our time and our money and our personal schedules and our vacations and the the friends we used to have to pay to be hostage. We'll pay to be in prison to doing what God wants over what we want. Some of you believers, y'all aren't under house arrest, but heart arrest, right? Living and driven by the right and good fear of the Lord. And it often happens when like these folks on the boat. But neither sun or stars appeared for days. And no small storm lays upon your life. When you came to a point when all hope of being saved in and of yourself was at last abandoned. When the Lord brings us to a place where we will throw everything and see everything a second and less than his own will and the salvation he alone can give us, that is when the gospel begins to dig deep into our hearts. And the Lord literally with some of you has shown you through life-challenging situations, through the death of a loved one, through financial catastrophe, through a failed or failing marriage, through a lost job, through, through failure period, through lonely nights, some of you through having to go to prison and, and mental institutions and having awakened in a post-drug-induced stupor through what the pain and struggle and twists and turns many of you are going through right now. That he alone is the life and light and hope and peace in the storms of this world. That the only thing you got to hold on to and is holding on to you is the gospel. It's putting your life in, in the hope of what God has spoken. Just like these men did. Paul spoke and they were like, yeah, man, that's the only thing we got. And when the church comes forward, you know what the gospel is? The gospel is a storm, an arresting and an arresting force. And when the church and God's people come with it, they come, y'all come to bring unrest and tempest to people in this world who think they run stuff. To shake things up. And maybe that's why people don't like y'all. And sometimes you don't like your own God sometimes. 
He still love you because it turns our world upside down on itself and calls us sinners to be hostage to the one person who can save us. You only got one hope in this world. I'm going to say that with full confidence. I don't care how many beliefs in this room. You only have one hope in this world. I love this idea of the suns and the stars and darkness because you know what? In darkness, you can't make an idol. You can't write no new book, no new Bible, no angel bringing it down from heaven, none of that kind of stuff, nothing where there's no sun or stars and everything you got's going. There's only but one hope that there is actually a Lord who can make the storm stop and speak in the middle of it. That is your only hope today. I don't want you to leave here thinking there's something else out there because there ain't. Thank God for the storm, for the tragedy of our humanity, for the end of ourselves, for our dark nights and days where we were left with nothing but just to wait for death. Thank God for the tempest of life. Thank God for the chains that that bind us to live with and for him that locks and captures our hearts and takes our lives away from ourselves because we will kill ourselves and destroy ourselves if we leave it in our own hands. Thank God because it comes with glorious results. So Paul ends up in Rome and gets challenged by the Jews there, the Bible says, that these Jewish leaders would come and see him. And when he talks to them, the Bible said, I'm not going to read all the verses, but he talks to them and, you know, some are believing, some are kind of listening to him. And Paul got to make everybody mad. Why do you have to go with the prophets? You go something nice, you know? This is what the Apostle Paul says, right? The Holy Spirit was right in saying to you, your, to your fathers through Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes, they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and run and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. What a glorious ending, right? I mean, he ends up offending and being a sellout to his people, the Jews, turning to the Gentiles, which meant he could never be safely released in Rome without the government being tagged as contributing to his assassination by the Jews. The Jews would never lobby to get him out. And so he stays right there in Rome, arrested a pariah, a spectacle, a controversial figure, a tragic hero. And we don't know exactly what happened to Paul. It's like a blur. Y'all remember the end of Boys in the Hood? You know, when Doughboy just walks and disappears. This is Paul at the end of Acts. Fade out. And unlike John Singleton gave you, there's no writing to say he died two years later. No, we don't know. Got some nice letters. He fade. The gospel ends in a fade. And many believed he died there having not gotten justice. Maybe he did go Caesar. God promised he'd be before Caesar, so maybe he did. But no Spain, no French Riviera, no Apostle Paul school of Messianic Judaism, no Apostle Paul ministries. He had the pulpit with his name on it. 
an arrest, a shipwreck. We didn't have this in our reading. Being bit by a venomous snake. He was helping fix the fire for other people on this island land out. And the Bible says this serpent came out the flame and latched onto his hand and he shook it off. An ankle monitor for the rest of your life. So how is this the church triumphant? How is this gospel success? Why would you want to be a Christian? The greatest author in Christianity, meaning the amount of work he did. The apostle, this is the way his life ends. So you great Christians, get ready, fade out. It's glorious because in part, verse 31 says, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. So what does this mean? Paul could write and have guests and spread the gospel and train young preachers and write letters to the churches and have people come to him under the protection and security of the Roman government. Paul was more effective in chains, get this, under house arrest than he ever would be in hindsight running for his life through Spain. But by being under house arrest, ironically, Paul was free to say what God wanted him to say and write without the Jews or the government shutting him down. Dare I say it, Paul was freed by God to be what God wanted him to be and do an experience by being trapped and caught in the tragedy and drama of this life. He was not safe and free in this world, but he was safe and free and made free in and by the life arresting hands of God. This shows us something that is hard to hear, but true. In this world, there is no freedom. Land of the free, home of the brave. Ain't no freedom up in here. Somebody's definition of freedom, sure, but not the Lord's definition of freedom. I can't figure out which one's going to last longer. Huh. Let me think of kingdoms that thought they would last forever. Rome! Wow. Free ain't free. Because the freedom you enjoy ain't forever. And it's only as good as you can do with your own hands. As long as the stars and the sun are shining and there ain't no storm, you're free. But as soon as the sun and stars stop shining and it's a storm, all of a sudden you ain't free no more. So the environment controls your freedom. That ain't free. The stock market controls your freedom. That ain't free. There is no freedom, there's no safety, there's no real sense of worth that cannot be lost in this world. True freedom comes by being captured and held captive by the love and care of Jesus Christ. Michael Garrison, a journalist, wrote after the death of Chuck Colson, who served time for his part in the Watergate scandal. Some of you may be old enough to know what that is, some of you not. And who also founded Prison Fellowship, a ministry to prison inmates. He said this, It is the central paradox of Christianity that fulfillment starts in emptiness that streams emerge in the desert, that freedom can be found in a prison cell. When people become slaves and prisoners of Christ, only then will they be free to worship God, hear his truth, form authentic relationships, and face the world with with the renewed dignity that comes from Christ. The Bible says, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. For sure. But this ending is more glorious than even that. I got this definition of tragedy. The idea of tragedy, the Greek kind of classical definition, the idea of tragedy was defined by Aristotle in his book, The Art of Poetry. It was about a person, a tragic hero. He was a good person, but he has a flaw, sometimes called the tragic flaw. 
In the course of the play, something bad happens to him. A catastrophe usually dies, but this wasn't absolutely necessarily an ancient Greek tragedy. But in having this bad thing happen to him, he overcomes the flaw. Verse 31. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The gospel spreads in our hearts and through us to the world when we embrace and promote the tragic hero, Jesus Christ, who has taken on our flaw, the flaw of our sin, and a catastrophe happened to him when he was crucified and died. But he rose from the grave, and he overcame not his flaw, but the flaw of sin in a broken world on and for all of us. His story intersects our lives, and it makes what believers experience and what the church's story is built and driven on a great and amazing tragedy of God coming in the flesh and taking on humanity and humbling himself and dying. That is why the gospel spreads. That's the power behind it. Back to Chuck Colson. Tells about a prison in Sao do Campos, Brazil, which was turned over to two Christians more than, I guess, 20 years ago. It is run according to Christian principles. The prison only has two people on its staff. The inmates do everything else. Each prisoner has another to whom he is accountable. Every prisoner goes to chapel or takes a course in character formation. Each prisoner is assigned to a volunteer family outside the prison that makes him a part of their family. The rate of return for crimes after release is 4% compared to 75% in other Brazilian prisons. When Colson visited a prison to discover the secret of their success, a prisoner told him that our success is because there is but one true prisoner that will never leave this place that is here. So he took him to what at one time was an isolation cell. When they got there, the prisoner asked Colson if he wanted to go, and he said yes. When the door opened, Colson saw a beautifully carved wooden figure of Jesus hanging on the cross. The prisoner pointed to the figure of Jesus and whispered, he's doing time for all of us. He's the prisoner that makes us all free the world's most amazing tragedy. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Those acts has made, have made the church inmates of his freedom and free to go out to do other acts that will bring others to see and know of his love and grace and sacrifice for them. Because though we may live with storms and at great expense, our Lord Jesus, the tragic hero, reigns and rules, and like that prison cell, never leaves his post as Lord and Savior. That's how Christianity stays, remains, and grows. It's the most amazing, tragic story.